couple weeks ago, or maybe more than that, we began talking about the church and being a Christian. We started this class on Thursday evenings, both here and over Zoom, called A New Life, which really has the idea of how to begin being a Christian or how all of us can change our life. And I think that really applies to those who have been Christians in their own uh, by, by being baptized for many years, as well as those who are brand new. We had several baptisms uh, in the late summer, early fall, and so this was designed for them. But truthfully, it really is a beneficial lesson for most of us. So I've talked a couple of weeks, two different sermons about being together as a group, a body. The church is a body, not just individual people. The common picture in our culture is that Christianity is between you and God. And that's the only thing that matters between you and God is a complete vertical relationship. And that simply is not true. There, there's more to it than that. The Bible pictures maybe as much as anything else that Christianity is a group thing. It's an assembly. It's all of us together. That's probably the most common picture of Christians in the New Testament, not as individual people who are uh, in their bedroom worshiping or on a mountaintop by themselves who never assemble with other Christians, but the Bible pictures an assembly of Christians. Whether they're assembled in the building or an assembly across a city, they are a unit. They're an organism. We're going to talk more about that later. The church is not an organization as much as it is an organism where various parts form a whole. Some of you know that I uh, am a backyard beekeeper uh, over a lot of my lifetime. And that's what people misunderstand about a beehive. They picture a beehive as a monarchy with a queen in the center who tells every other bee what to do. In the 1800s, they called it a king bee. They thought it was just the king. But isn't that way at all? The queen does not control the colony. The whole colony and all the various functions of the different bees control what the beehive does. And so scientists now believe that even though each individual bee is distinct and is a an organism on its own, that really what a beehive is, is a super organism composed of individuals who have different capabilities. Now the truth is that's exactly how the Bible pictures the church. It's composed of individuals who have a relationship to God and a relationship to their creator. But the church is to work together and is meant to be together in the things that it does, both here in the building and out at life in general. So even when I'm out in the community or at my job or with my family, I am a part of this church and a part of the body of Christ wherever I am. That's the part that's missing for so many people in what they call Christianity is they think that once they leave this building, they can do whatever they want. And I've heard so many stories of people saying, well, when we were little, you know, we go to church, my dad would drag us to church and all the way home, he'd stop at the store and buy some liquor and be cursing all the way home and probably and beat my mother when we got home, you know, all this kind of stuff. As if going to church in that case made much of a difference at all. Being a Christian involves all of your life, all the time. And that means you're a part of a body. So what you do, for good or ill, affects all of us. Now this morning, I want to narrow that idea down just a little to talk about the value of the assembly. And by that I mean, in specifically, this kind of public assembly of being together. Now we've talked about this before, but I want to look at it from a little bit different perspective to try to, to try to get across this idea that the New Testament 
talks about the value of Christians being together. That's not a modern idea. The modern idea is you can go home and you can meditate on your own. The Holy Spirit will speak to you at the breakfast table and you'll know what to do for the day and you don't need anybody else. That's not the scriptural idea of being a Christian. And we need to purge that from our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Although it is important that you do think about what God wants you to do at the breakfast table. Okay? But really, that should be in regard to the whole body. Now, let's go back to a verse that we talked about uh, last week or a week before here in Acts chapter 2. Let's just start there. Here, Peter, on, in Acts chapter 2 at this Pentecost, the first Pentecost after Christ's resurrection. Pentecost was a, a, a Jewish feast and of harvest. And so after Christ's resurrection, the apostles were told to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to fall on them, and they did. And on Pentecost, that holiday there in Jerusalem, or a feast day as it were, not a holiday, but a feast day, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles there in the, in the temple area. And they, Peter began to speak. His speech is recorded. The other 11 spoke too, other, but, but Peter's speech is recorded. And he told them that they had crucified the Christ, the Holy One of God. They were guilty of that. And they cried out, what must we do to be saved? What must we do? And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it says then, and those who gladly received his word were baptized. That means that those who didn't receive his word were not baptized. That's how you can tell at the preaching of the gospel, whether somebody receives it or not is by what they do in response to it. So those who did not receive his word were not baptized, but those who did receive his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. I read an article somebody gave me a couple days ago by J.D. Greer, a pretty famous, I've read a lot of stuff from him. He's pretty good, generally speaking, in many broad subjects, J.D. Gurr, a prominent Southern Baptist, he says, you know what we've done? Wait, you know what we discovered? We discovered, we've begun to practice spontaneous baptism, he called it. He had to make up a word that's not in the Bible because that church is not practicing what the Bible teaches. We had to have spontaneous baptisms, meaning that we didn't tell people when they were baptized we have to wait until we get enough people together to make it worthwhile. Someone here told me that's what they were told when they went to a church. We, we, they made a confession to the Lord. You're saved. Now, we got to wait until we get enough people to make it worthwhile to fill the baptistry so we can baptize a group of people. And so then at Easter or Christmas, they would have a baptismal ceremony. J.D. Gurr said, you know, we discovered, we discovered in the Bible they had spontaneous baptisms. So we're going to do that every once in a while. Really? There's no such thing as word spontaneous baptism in the Bible. There's just baptism. And so they baptize people in the same hour of the night, it says. That sounds pretty spontaneous, doesn't it? I gotta stop being cynical today. I don't know how it's gonna happen or what hour of the day it will be, but I promise I will stop being cynical for a few moments. Does that sound? Anyway. I'm cynical about that now. But he says 3,000 people were baptized. And they, the ones who were baptized, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. So they continued steadfastly 
in the teaching of the apostles, by following that teaching, they continued, I meant to highlight this word, fellowship together, which means common sharing together of this experience of being a Christian. And that would include, as we're going to see in a moment, meeting together in an assembly. Much less what it included afterwards. Breaking of bread. Now there's a debate. Is that the private breaking of bread in their homes or eating? Or is it the Lord's Supper? Seems to me it's in the, it's the Lord's Supper in this context. But, uh, I know that the prayers they continued in. And we see them praying in the temple. We see them being together in the temple. And that's why it goes on to say in verse 44, now all who believed were together. Here's this group idea of these individual people, he numbers them, 3,000 have been baptized, but they were together. They didn't just go back to their homes and say, well, I'm a Christian, I'm going to go to a mountaintop and pray and just be a Christian. That's not what they said. They were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They began to share with each other the stuff that they had. No, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. They didn't become communists because their possessions remained their own. They just said that what I have is yours if you need it, and they shared it. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So here's two things. They continued every day with one accord. Sometimes the one accord occurred in the temple, as they assembled together as new Christians, sometimes the one accord continued when they went back to their houses and ate because they were doing the same things and they had the same God to worship and they had brothers and sisters that they all loved. They were together in this. So this is a picture of the New Testament church from the standpoint of the New Testament, not of the 21st century, that involved both being together in the temple and from house to house. And it says they praised God had favor with all the people, and God, the Lord, added to the church daily such as those who were being those who were being saved. So every day the Lord added those who kept being baptized and saved. He added them to this number, and they began to be a church in the city of Jerusalem. And it was increasing each day as other people obeyed the gospel. Now what you see here is that the purpose of the assembly shows its value. The value of the assembly is not found and whether when you go to church, you come home feeling warm and fuzzy or whatever the case may be. You should get something out of being here, if nothing else, of reading the scriptures together and of talking to other people who share a light, precious faith, as Peter says. But that's not altogether the value of the assembly per se, whether you subjectively get something out of it. This is what we measure it by. We go home and say, well, did I, did I feel good when I left? And if we didn't feel that good when we left, well, I didn't get anything out of it. I don't want to do that again. Or if we felt good when we left, you say, well, I like that. I'm going to go back. Kind of like if you go to a movie or not or a restaurant. Me, you, know, you go to a restaurant. We went to a restaurant the other day for some reason. And we both went away and said, nah, not going to spend our money there again. It wasn't horrible. But I didn't subjectively enjoy it that much. And so we don't go back. Okay, that's, that's fine with a restaurant. But is that what the church of the Lord, is that what the assembly of God is about? Well, it's not really what it's about. Because what happens at the assembly is two things. This is what's missing in our understanding and in our hearts. Part of what happens in this assembly goes up toward God. It's directed toward God. And that's an important part of it. When we sing these songs we're singing, even the ones that 
are encouraging each of us to do something. Are you sowing the seed of the kingdom, brother? That's talking to each of us. But that is really being directed toward our duty toward God. That's an honoring Him because we have a duty to teach other people that's being reflected in that singing. We do this together. And so a lot of what goes up is worship and praise to God. That can be happening when there's nothing else going on here. We're going to have a period of time when we take the Lord's Supper here in a few moments. And during the time when we're passing these emblems around, there's going to be silence in this assembly. Does that mean there's no worship and praise going up because there's silence in the assembly? Well, I hope that's not true. Hope that that may be the highlight of the worship of this assembly because it's coming from individual people who are worshiping God with brothers and sisters together. And that's part of the experience. And then there's another part of the assembly that is sometimes overlooked, and that's the part that goes out toward other human beings. And that is edification, meaning building each other up, encouraging one another. It is the declaration that happens. You know, the Bible says, we're going to come to this verse later, Jesus says when you take the Lord's Supper, you show forth the Lord's death till he comes again. Who are we showing it to? The Lord? Do you think he needs to know about his death? No, we're demonstrating that we believe in this and we're, we're, we're declaring this to the world that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that he died for our sins. It's a declaration to the world. So that's also going to matter. So part of the declaration that goes to human beings goes beyond these four walls to people of this community, other people that see you come here and take that supper and worship God. It's a declaration of your belief. That has power in the world. We don't see this because God does things quietly, most of the time, quietly, behind the scenes in ways that we don't appreciate. We keep expecting God to come and do some powerful miracle all the time, and sometimes He does that, but usually God works quietly in people's lives over a period of time. That's what you see more often. And so you have these two things. Now the interesting thing about it, I've said that common in our culture, maybe I'm wrong, so I'm going to contradict myself right now just a little bit. We see that a lot of our people's concept of Christianity is Godward. And then there's, but then we see in so many churches that their worship assemblies they may not go up either. They only go sideways to men because basically it's a rock concert. Who's that rock concert for? Well, you can say it's for God, but it's really, I think, obviously, to people that are on the outside, it's there to please human ears. And that's why you got to have expert musicians that know how to not only play the instruments but to make them all work and somebody to control the board and somebody to control the speakers and all that stuff because that got to have somebody to control the lights and the smoke and all that because it's a production for who? Do you think God needs smoke and speakers and lights? You you do. Humans do. So it's strange, it's strange that we're encouraging individual worship in this but and that's another whole subject. Now let's look at some of the things the scriptures say about this. When you look at this, and the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 is about the Lord's Supper. What we call the Lord's Supper, or it's often also called in this passage the communion. It's not called the Eucharist, so we're not going to use that term. It's called the Lord's Supper or the communion. So those scriptural terms for this thing that we're going to do here in a few moments. He was telling the Corinthians... You think you're doing it, but you're not doing it because you're not doing what I said. I'm going to summarize that passage. 
You say you're keeping the Lord's Supper, but you're not because you won't do it the way I've already instructed you. So let me tell you again what it's about and how to do it. That's what Paul's saying. That's not three words, by the way. I made it a little longer since I summarized it, but that's the gist of this passage. And we know that it was significant and it has a connection to the... The Lord's Supper is intricately, inherently connected to the assembly. And I know that partly just because of the offhand language. He uses offhand language to talk about it here. He says, for example, in verse 18, when you come together as a church, it's not possible to take the Lord's Supper. Meaning, you're trying, but it's not possible because of the way you do it, you're not doing it as a church. Each one is taking this one or that one. You're each individually doing your own supper or little groups are doing it. So you're coming together as an assembly or as a church, but you're not really taking the Lord's Supper because you're not doing it together. So the Lord's Supper is something that you do together. It's not an individual rite that the priest takes the bread and puts it on your tongue and you as an individual person are blessed by the priest when you do this. That's not the Lord's Supper. That's another religion's idea of the Eucharist, but that's not the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a common meal shared together in an assembly. Then he says in verse 20 and talking about this very thing, when you come together in one place... So he's even more specific. You're coming together in one place in the middle of doing this and you're doing the Lord's Supper there in one place. That's what happens in our assembly. And you see again in verse 33 that when you come together to eat, he tells them what to do. Now I've only taken those snippets out of this passage because I don't want to talk about all the details quite yet, but you see the language used offhandedly that we often ignore in this passage that points you to the assembly about the Lord's Supper, not as a separate act that you do by yourself. Now, I'm not discussing whether you can do it by yourself. You know, that's another subject we could talk about, but that's not the point. The point is, if I want to teach the truth about the Lord's Supper, I'm going to teach you that it's done in the assembly together with other people. That's the fundamental thing. Now, whether there can be exceptions to that, that's fine. But the exceptions do not... uh, There's this old uh, saying we use completely wrong. The exception proves the rule. Now, we use that to mean, well, when you have an exception, that proves that the rule is the exception. It means that the language means exactly the opposite of that, really. When you say the exception proves the rule, the word proves there is an old way of using the word, which means tests it. It tests the rule. So you can say, well, here's an exception. Well, I'll then test the rule by the exception. But it doesn't say the exception becomes the rule. And that's how people use that verse. That's what we think. Well, because if I were to say, well, yeah, you can take the supper by yourself, then, well, okay, it's okay then. God says it's okay to take it by myself. Is that what the Scriptures say? That's not what the Scriptures say. You can deduce that if you want to. But that's not what the Scriptures say in the exact language. And you can see the language right here. So let's go a little further in this. When did this happen? When did this assembly or this coming together in one place, when this gathering together, when did that happen? The Bible says on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, there's the breaking of bread he mentions in Acts 2. Paul was ready to depart. He spoke the next day. He spoke them and continued his message till midnight. That should say Acts chapter 20, verse 7. I'm sorry, I forgot to put the reference there. That's Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. When on the first day of the week, Mia Sabbation, something like that. The word in Greek 
They, they named the days differently back then, especially the Jews. They weren't named Moon Day or Sunday or Thor's Day or Woden's Day. That's the names we use. We use these Greek and Norse gods for names. Friday, which is a Greek, uh, which is a Norse god. We use those names. They, they numbered everything the Jews did from the Sabbath day. The seventh day. And then they called the next day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. So this is Mia Sabbatayon, first after the Sabbath. That's literally what the Greek says here. So they would number all the days. When they got to Friday, in the New Testament times, they called that the preparation. Because it was preparing for the Passover that evening and on into Saturday. So Friday was often just called the preparation. We see this in the scriptures, wanting to get Jesus off the cross. And so Paul says, on the first day after the Sabbath, not the Sabbath day, but on the first day after the Sabbath, when the disciples came together or were gathered together to break bread. I think the King James is more correct here. I think it says they were gathered together. And what that means, it's a passive word. It doesn't mean that they gathered themselves together. The phrase were gathered together or came together here implies that something gathered them together. If I go out to a park and throw a bunch of popcorn on the ground, what's going to happen? The pigeons and the squirrels are all going to be gathered together. Okay, They're all going to come and assemble around the popcorn. I know this is a very intellectual illustration, so try to bear with me here. We're gonna, we're talking some deep stuff here. The pigeons are gathered. What brings the pigeons together? Did they just decide to all land in the same place at the same time? No. They didn't decide anything except they saw popcorn. The popcorn gathered them together. And that's exactly the expression here. Something gathered the disciples together on the first day of the week. What was it? Well, it was the command of the Lord. And it was the fact that the resurrection took place on that day, which we see from other scriptures. So they were gathered together, not of their own accord, not because they made it up, but they were gathered together by something else that happened, which is the resurrection and the command of the Lord. And so we gather on this day, not because we like it or not so we can have a weekend, but we gather together today because the Lord commanded us to come together and take his supper together as brothers and sisters. And he would, it corresponds to the resurrection of Christ. It corresponds also in a bigger picture to the first day of the first week in the book of Genesis where God said, let there be light. Now I know this from 1 Corinthians 4 because he quotes this and says, just as God called light out of darkness, he called Christ from the grave. So there's a correspondence between the first creation day when God said, let there be light, and when God rose, raised Christ from the dead. Those two days correspond with God saying, let there be light. The scriptures say so. And that's the reason we gather on this day. So when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul spoke to them. Something else happened and they were having an assembly. This is an assembly, although the word assembly isn't used here. That's exactly what, what the words came together mean. And you can look at the, what the Greek means there and that, but you see also then what Paul says about this day in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning of verse 25. Sometimes we'll quote this passage when we have the Lord's Supper. I'll put this a verse if my, if I remember to do it, I'll put it up on the screen during the Lord's Supper in a moment. In the same manner, it says in verse 25, 1 Corinthians 11, 
He took the cup after supper, saying, this is the Lord's, the last supper we would call it, the Passover supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now this tells us two important things about the Lord's, the first day of the week. Two important things about the value of the assembly. One of them is, is that when we do this in the assembly on the first day of the week, we're to do it in remembrance of God. That's upward. That's to remember, that's to show God that we remember. That is a proclamation. That's a worship of Christ because we remember that He died for us and His blood was shed for us. So when you take this supper in a moment, it's not just a little bit of grape juice. It's a, it's a remembrance of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's an important thing that you have to have in your heart. And it goes up to God, this remembrance. And then he says, when you do this, as often as you do it every first day of the week, that's what the disciples gather. The disciples gathered together to do this on the first day of the week. They were gathered together by the command of God and the example of God in raising Christ from the dead. And then when they do this, you proclaim the Lord's death. Not to God, but to men. So that's what's happening here. Although other people outside this building cannot see what goes on here. When they see you gathered together here, they know that these people are serving their God, Jesus Christ, and His Father. And they're remembering Christ on the day that He rose from the dead. That's what they're doing. The world knows that that's the day that Christians think that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They may not believe that themselves, but they know that's what we think. And when they see you assembling every first day, they say, well, there are some people that believe that Jesus rose on the first day, and they're going there to remember that. And if they don't know that, they can find out and should. And then you have this reading and a little bit before in 1 Corinthians 10. Go back a little bit into the previous chapter. Here's something else that Paul says about this first day of the week assembly. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The word bless here the way it was used in the first century, really means to give thanks for. So when you bless the bread, if we ask one of the brothers here to bless the bread, I'm not saying, oh, pronounce a blessing upon you like I have some power from God, pronounce a blessing like a Catholic priest might say he's doing. The word just means to give thanks for. Blessing is to give thanks for, to God. And that's a blessing to God, and that's what it means. So we bless and give thanks for this cup that we drink, because it is a communion or sharing together in the blood of Christ. Now I think that goes both ways. I think that's one of the things that goes both ways. I have communion with God because God is my Savior through the blood of Christ saved me. And I have a relationship with God and a communion or sharing together with the blood of Christ because Christ is in heaven and I'm saved by His blood. And therefore we have a connection. But I also have a connection with all of you when I drink that fruit of the vine. Because you also share in the blood of Christ. That's what connects us together. There is not a single person in this assembly that I would know, most likely, at all in my life if it hadn't been for the blood of Christ. I wouldn't know my wife Judy for sure. Because we went to the same college together. Because our parents and grandparents thought that we ought to go and learn about God. And we, they, we sent us to a, a religious school because of the blood of Christ. They thought that was important. And I met her there. In fact, we got engaged... Uh, 49 years ago today, we got engaged. Okay, so that's, that's a while. A few of you 
Most of you were alive then. Some of you weren't. <laughs> I can see a few of you that were alive then in 1974. But anyway, we share, we share, now we share a life together and our children share something. Not because we're so smart, but because of Christ's blood, we have something in common. And all of you that I know and love here, which is most of you, we share this bond in Christ. You see, I'm, you can't see if you're listening. I, I'm smiling when I say that. We share because of this blessing of the communion of the blood of Christ, the sharing in that. The bread which we break isn't not a communion of the body of Christ. So what's the body of Christ he's talking about here? Now this really gets to the point. We think, when we think of the body of Christ in this supper, we're thinking of his body that's hanging on the cross. Okay, that's good as far as it goes. I think it's much more than that. The body of Christ is the church. It's all the individuals that are saved. And so when I take that bread, I'm remembering and I'm, I'm thanking God for all the other parts of the body. Past and present, that's human beings that serve the Lord. I'm connected to all those people. All around the world today, there are people that I will never ever see until we get to heaven one day that are taking this supper and eating this bread together in their own way of their own culture, in their own language, because they love the Lord Jesus Christ and they share in His body. They are His body. God knows who they are, men may not, but the Lord knows them that are His, the Scriptures say. And so we share this together. That's the value of this assembly. So when you come into this assembly, it isn't just about whether so-and-so notices your new shoes or somebody speaks to you the way you want to or not or whether you, whether you like what Mike preached about. There's way more than that here. You're, you can understand that when you do these things, even in the silence of your, on your, in your own seat, you're sharing in something celestial, transcendent, because it's the body of Christ. So there was a great value in this assembly, and this was done on the first day of the week, and Paul points us in that direction. Let me, let's talk about some of the other things they did quickly. Our time's going, getting away from us. Uh, they sang together, and I'm not going to read these verses, but here's the, here's what the scriptures say they did together in the assembly and sometimes out of the assembly. They sang together. Doesn't say they enjoyed a concert together particularly. They sang together and their croaky, off-key voices blended together into something much better than any individual one could do. Our singing is better not because we have... not because we have great singers. It's better than any one singer in this group. And we have a few that could stand on their own. My daughter Susan could sing professionally if she wanted to and had any training. My daughter Catherine could do the same thing. And my boys could sing. But the singing in the assembly is better than they can do because it's all the voices joined together. I know people think, well, I can't sing, so I'm not going to sing. You can and you should. However croaky and off-key you think it is, it adds to the whole. Now there are people that maybe they would ruin it. I don't know. I'll get into that. But I don't really care. And here's why I don't care. And well, you shouldn't care either. If such a so-and-so or brother so-and-so has a horrible voice, you shouldn't care. Because what do you think God is hearing? 
God is hearing the heart. He's not hearing that voice. He made that voice. He's the one who made that voice. He he shaped their head and sinus cavity so that voice would be produced and made the size of their vocal cords the way he wanted, made them. And when they sing with that voice, it's a glory to him. Do you think he cares if he, we think it's off key? He doesn't care. We shouldn't care either because we see a higher value in the joining together of all of our voices to praise God. That's the instrument which they which they used, the human heart. They prayed together. Oh, you can pray individually. When the command is given, pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5, I think that's probably more talking about your individual prayer privately in your home or other places. But the praying together, like in Acts chapter 12, was prayed, and the whole assembly prayed this. That means somebody led them, and they all prayed these thoughts together. There is value in that. Okay. Even when I was a kid, I remember there was one brother, when they called him for lead prayer, I went, oh no. Because he would lead 15 minute prayers using words I didn't even understand. I wish I could hear prayers like that now. I really do. I wish there were more men who prayed prayers like that. We don't get into that, but they prayed together. It unified them. It made them a body together. We're praying to a common source, so we're together in this. Uh, they received the teaching of the word together. There's a difference in me sitting at the kitchen table teaching you, or even if you come to eat dinner at my house, I'll probably give you a lecture on this and that and the other. Okay, that's just the nature of it. That's the price you pay for eating Judy's cooking. Listen to me pontificate about stuff. But there's really a value in doing it together. And we see that in Acts 20 and 7. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14. He tells them to learn together so we could all teach here the same thing. And we should be interested in that. We, we also see that their assemblies concluded the Lord's Supper so they commune with the Lord together. I think when Jesus says, I'll not eat of this supper again or take of this bread until I eat it with you in the kingdom of God, I think he's talking about the church. I think he's talking about eating the supper with us now. Because he is in his throne. He is sitting on his throne. He is in his kingdom. The book of Acts is very clear about this. Couldn't be more clear in Acts 2 that he's sitting on David's throne right now. And he says, when I come into my kingdom, I'm going to eat this supper with you. Take this bread with you. So we commune with Christ when we do this. And that we do it together as a body, as the extension of his body on the earth. And then they took up a collection together. They all gave of whatever they had, little or small. Now, some people think, and some churches kind of teach by example, that this is the main reason to get together. Some of you may think that. You may think that the real reason we're here, so the the reason we have assemblies is so we can uh, collect money from people. I hope you don't get that impression when you come into this assembly. The reason that we have this assembly is so we can collect your money. We'll be glad to take your money anytime. Just kind of kidding about that. No, you you can give when you want to. But we take up a collection on the first day of the week because that's what Paul said to do in 1 Corinthians 16. He said, I've already given order to other churches and I want you to do the same thing that when you come together on the first day of the week, you lay by in store. So that's what we do together. It's a group thing. So the money that you give on this day into this, into this well, we use this basket, this, uh, these solid Sterling silver plates made out of aluminum. We gather the money in that, and you can even give digitally. It doesn't matter. But all that money goes into a common treasury. You are, in the words of the Scripture, laying this money at the apostles' feet. 
And it becomes not your money anymore. It's not Gary and I's money. It's the Lord's money because it goes into a common treasury and it can only be used for the purposes which meet the criteria what the gospel says, it, what the New Testament says it should be used for. And that's what we try to do. We're going to use that money, Lord willing and by our ability, to do the things the New Testament says that money should be used for because it belongs to all of you. It doesn't belong to any one of you. And once you give it, it belongs to everybody, not you. And so there's no distinction if you're the member that puts in two cents or you're the member that puts in $300 today, there's no distinction. Because it all goes into one place. It all belongs to all of us to serve the Lord with. So anyway, we can't speak about that. But this assembly then also, quickly, provides a defense against apostasy. Notice what he says in Hebrews 3. Apostasy is falling away from God. What I see happen so often... People are baptized into Christ and for a little while they might come or be connected to other Christians, but then pretty soon you can't find them. They're gone. And it isn't that they've gone someplace else to serve the Lord. They still live here or they still go, but they're not connected to the body anymore. They've, they've cut themselves off from the body of Christ. And like other limbs that you cut off, they're withered and they're shrunken. Because they don't have a connection to the body. But he says that the assembly coming together with other Christians provides a defense against this falling away. Take care, brethren, he says, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So every day we need to be connected to our brothers and sisters to keep us from developing this hardened, unbelieving heart that will keep us, that will cause us to fall away. And when we don't do that, it's my observation over many years when people don't stay connected, they don't stay faithful. Not just to the assembly, they don't often stay faithful to God because they lose that connection. They wither up. And it's a gradual process, not 100% all the time, but it often is that. So stay connected. Stay in the assembly because there's value in the assembly and it provides this defense again. So so how, the, the word church, by the way, means it's from the Greek word ekklesia, ecclesia, however you say it. I don't know how to speak the original. Nobody does, but it means an assembly. It's what it means. It In the New Testament, it's usually translated church, but not every time. We'll do, a, in the future here, we'll do another whole study on that word and what it means, how it's used in the Bible. But it means assembly. So when Jesus Christ says, I will build my church, he literally says to the people standing there, I will build my assembly. I will, more or less, I will gather my people into an assembly. That's what he says he's going to do. Now, how can you be a part of the church and not assemble if you're an assembly? Now, I know that there are usages in the Bible, which we'll examine in another sermon, where the church is assembled and the church is unassembled right there in 1 Corinthians. But part of being a part of the church is to assemble. That's what the very word means, is to assemble. And that's why he goes on to say that don't forsake this assembling. I think Gary touched a little bit on this definition of forsaking in a class recently. And, and, uh, I think we agree. We'll have to, we'll have to see after I preach this, won't we? But let's read the verse first in Hebrews chapter 10. This is a warning. Now, now we're going to come to something a little bit more serious. 
Let us consider one another, he says, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The word, bear with me for just a moment, the word consider here means to think carefully about. Consider the lilies of the field. You drive by, how many of you, you know, you see the Florida snow now blooming on the on the lawns. You can tell who sprays weed killer and who doesn't, because the Florida snow is blooming on some lawns here. It's called Mexican clover. That's what it is. It's an invasive plant, but I love it. I consider that. I drive down. I see that because I know my bees are getting something to eat and some pollen and nectar from that. Not tons of it, but enough to help them out in this dry in this winter season. Now, the rest of you drive by and go, hey, they don't consider it at all. I consider I, I think, I wonder how many bees are on that. Isn't, it, isn't that beautiful? You know, okay. When you become a beekeeper, you become a horticulturalist to some degree. But anyway, the point being, consider means to think carefully about, deeply consider. So when he says you consider one another, part of the value of this is simple. What you should be thinking when you come here, before you come is, I wonder how so-and-so is. I need to find out about this. I need to find out about that. I need to greet them. I need to see how they are. I need to see if they need anything. I need to greet them and show them I love them. We consider one another. I know when I speak to an audience like this, I stand up here, I know that there are people here, even in this relatively small number, some of you people are grieving over serious problems. You're, you're de- grieving over losses and sorrow. You are dealing with sin that you don't know what to do with. You feel you have all kind of financial problems. Everything is weighing down upon you. I know this. And I certainly can't address all that from the pulpit. But together... As a body, we can consider one another. And that's what it means. Think deeply about one another. That's the value of the assembly. And that's why he tells you then that we're to stir each other up to love and good work. So when I see this, I need to encourage you in spite of all these difficulties you're experiencing or adversity or or temptation to stir you up to love and good works. The word there I think in the King James is stimulate or some version. Stimulate you. Provoke is King James. Stimulate you to love and good works. Sometimes you got to poke on each other. Say, what do you think you're doing? I haven't seen you in three weeks. Where are you? What are you doing? Because you need to be provoked. And so we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but we exhort one another. Exhort includes putting your arm around somebody and calling them to your side and patting them on the back. It also says, you know, you, you need to get your act together here. That's what you do in the assembly. What's it mean? Well, now, forsaking the assembly. Growing up, I think I heard the idea from preaching that if I missed a Wednesday night service, I was forsaking the assembly. I don't think you should miss Wednesday night services. I'm tell you plainly, because there's value there. We need you. There's value there. But not everybody can be there. For various reasons, and I understand that. And so, I don't think not being at the assembly once in a while is forsaking. You ought to be at every assembly that you can be at because it's what you need and it's what the church needs, what your brothers and sisters need. But a forsake here, Paul was saying, or the writer of Hebrews was saying, that there are some of you that just stopped. 
You just abandon it. It means to leave behind, to abandon, to leave in straits, or just leave as if you don't care. To leave in straits means helpless. You don't care what the other Christians are doing. So they stopped attending as if they didn't care what the other Christians were doing, what was happening to them, what, what was needed. They just stopped. Now this is what I was talking about in the beginning of the sermon about people who think they can have a one-way relationship with God and Christianity and not consider their brothers and sisters. The writer of Hebrews is directly saying here, you can't do that. You ought not to do that. Abandon the assembly as if you don't need it. So he goes on to say, in this, or just before this, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Then he says, let us consider. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. And then he says, don't forsake the assembly. Okay, This is what the scriptures tell us to do here. All right. We're going to wrap this up here. What I hope you got out of the sermon this morning then was the value of the assembly, not just to you personally, but the value that you bring to other people by being here. And so I want to emphasize that with you, and I want to encourage you to make whatever changes you need to make to be more involved, to help the church here, and to grow together if you can. If not, find other ways to interact with your brothers and sisters here to stimulate them to love and good works if you can't be here during the assemblies. Find other ways to do that. So make a conscious effort to look and say, how can I stimulate to love and good works the people around here? All right, we're going to close our service this morning, and I want to ask you then to uh, turn over to the song that Brother Joel has selected, if I can get to it here, uh, number 709. That's the wrong number. Excuse me, 163. Number 163. We're going to sing this song now as we close our assembly together. This part of our assembly. And this is a time when you can decide to become a Christian, make good on that and come forward, confess your belief in Christ and be baptized for the remission of your sins. It's also a time you can come forward if you want your brothers and sisters to pray with you to help you with something you're struggling with. Whether it's a sin or disappointment, other thing, you can come and we'll pray with you this morning. Let's stand and sing.